If you need an outline, there's one in the back. Today we're going to talk about what is often referred to as the cultural mandate or creation mandate or dominion mandate. It goes by all three. And uh, this is a one-off for me. It's not a series. It could be a long series, but I'm just going to try to, in the time that we have, talk about some very... Uh, important responsibilities that the Bible assigns to us as uh, under the rubric of the doctrine of creation. There is a reformed doctrine of creation and it doesn't really focus on uh, the days of creation and the length of time in the days of creation and the literary theories that abound trying to explain that but rather uh, the fact that we have been called to cultivate uh, the creation and what that's supposed to mean and what it's supposed to look like. So we'll take some time to do that this morning. I think the best thing we can do is open with prayer. So let's pray. Father, we thank you again for time that we have to set apart ourselves from the normal uh, responsibilities and callings that we have to sit and listen to the preaching and teaching of your word, we do pray that the Holy Spirit will inspire both, and we pray that we would learn something and be encouraged, corrected, reproved, built up, helped, and be in a better position after hearing this to give glory to you, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. So when you're talking about the creation mandate, you would go to Genesis, and let's look in Genesis chapter 1. And look at some verses of Scripture that I think are extremely helpful in considering this. Genesis 1.26, we'll read uh, 1.26 and following to uh, 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then look in chapter 2, and let's look at verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it, for um, you shall surely die. Yes, and then I wanted to look at one other verse, verse 19. 
Well, let me read, uh, let's continue reading in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. So as we think about the cultural mandate, uh, the point of view that I'm taking is pretty much uh, tied together by the theologian and statesman and just about every other hat he wore, Abraham Kuyper. Both Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavink were uh, very um, insightful and helpful in understanding this concept of the creation mandate. Now, to help us understand the importance of it, I want to talk the difference about the difference that comes from Paul Marshall, um, who's a, a something of a philosopher and theologian, uh, the difference between what is called lifeboat theology and um, ark theology. Lifeboat theology is pretty much uh, coined and understood by evangelicals that are not of the Reformed uh, tradition who basically see the Christian's responsibility toward culture is nothing but saving people, seeing people uh, delivered from their sins, seeing people saved and uh, prepared for heaven. And so there's a strong drive to do that. And they would basically take the position that the world and creation itself is a sinking ship. It's like the Titanic. It's going down. Let's get out the lifeboats, save as many people as we can. We really have no responsibility toward the culture. Uh, the culture is going to be burned up. It's worthless. And so, therefore, we should be spending our time, talent, treasures, resources, and seeing people saved. Now, you would not find me more agreeable to the fact that we do need to do evangelism, but is that all we're called to do? And the answer is no. Uh, we have work to do. We have to cultivate the creation. And so as a result of that, another way of seeing this is ark theology. And who was it that built the ark? Noah. Yeah. I used to ask that question to young people, and they would always say, Jesus. You know, the answer to every question is Jesus. But no, Noah. Noah built the ark, and as you know, he preserved the animals and the creeping things of creation. And after being on the ark and exiting the ark, his re he received again the same creation mandate that Adam did, almost to the word, that he was to replenish the earth, fill the earth, uh, subdue it. And then also you'll see this theme uh, wrapped together and intertwined with covenant theology uh, when you look at Abraham, he received a mandate very much like Adam did in the garden. You'll see it with uh, Moses. You'll see it with David. You'll see it in the prophets. Uh, and then you'll see it fulfilled in one grand sense in the great commission Jesus gives the church. And you say, well, I thought that's only about evangelizing and baptizing people. And my answer to that is, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And I commanded you in Genesis 1 to do what? To be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it, and to cultivate it. In other words, God packed into the nature of our world 
all kinds of opportunities for us to be culture makers. We are responsible to cultivate the creation. And so all of the arts, every one of the arts, uh, everything that we lay our hands to, whatever your work, your vocation, your calling, we are God's image in the world and we image him by exercising dominion over creation. Now, my term for dominion is not so much this idea of fighting against resistance so much as developing what God has packed into the resources of the world. And so we are called by God to develop it. If, if you want to hear it in another sense, the Bible begins with a garden and it ends with what? A city. A city coming down from heaven. What does that image immediately convey to you? That we're like pioneers. <laughs> and we've been called into the creation. And our responsibilities. This will give you joy and understanding that your work in the world matters. That it has substance. That it is something that gives us all joy as we understand that our vocation and calling. See, a lot of people have this um, understanding uh, that go goes back to medieval c Catholicism and the Reformation challenged this understanding that there are two classes of people. There's the clergy and the laity, and the laity are in the world and kind of in the way, and the really important people who really matter in the kingdom of God, who really should be uh, paid attention to and revered and held up as great examples are the clergy. Still see that in some churches. There's a real attitude of negativity toward laity. But that was not reformational. Reformational was, Martin Luther says, God's milking of cows occurs through milkmaids. And that's culture. And that's work. And uh, we image God by doing what God did. You note that in the beginning, the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. It's called tohu vabohu in Hebrew. And it means that creation itself was ordered out of a state of somewhat barrenness and chaos. God formed the earth, filled the earth, and then called man his image and told man to image him. And so that's the birth of all science. The birth of all industry. The birth of all uh, city building, the, the birth of everything, is this creation mandate. And we'll talk in a minute about how the fall has affected our call and that responsibility. It doesn't make it go away, it just makes it harder. <laughs> and uh, if I don't have time to get to the end, as close as I want to get to the end, uh, I will tell you that cataclysm is going to be required to make the new heavens and the new earth. Cataclysm will be required. And if there's any burning or judgment going on, it just purifies the work we have done to honor God. It doesn't destroy it. It doesn't pass away. It lasts because it's a work done for the honor of God. So this is a high notion, and I want to get into it and unpack it. Historically, uh, before I talk about a definition of culture... Uh, well, let me talk about that first because that will be helpful to you. William Edgar says this, The creation mandate is the ongoing charge to humanity in the power and blessing of God 
to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and to gently subdue and cultivate the earth. The creation mandate was given to Adam and Eve within the narrative of the original creation. Alongside the prohibition against eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, humanity was blessed with God's presence and told to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So the first responsibility we have is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with other image bearers. That is our responsibility before God, is to fill the earth with potential, I would say, image bearers and uh, go on to subdue and cultivate the earth. Although sin and separation from God followed closely on the hills of the original charge, the creation mandate was reiterated to the people of God throughout Scripture, mostly attached to the covenants, I would say. The final and ultimate reiteration of the mandate is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19-20, which Jesus gave to his disciples before his ascension. Therefore, the creation mandate is an ongoing and it's not competitive with worshiping God, Christians are to care for this world even as they hope for the second coming of Christ. God is foundational to everything we believe and everything we love. For this reason, no biblical teaching can stand if it's not linked with the divine being. That is why the first words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God. And then the very first biblical disclosure we are given is that of the original creation. The first two chapters of Genesis divulge in a beautifully told narrative how God laid down the foundations of the earth and then created a special space for our first parents. And of course, the Lord did set up the test. They may eat freely of the product of the garden except for the fruits fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We often do not pause to think how generous the Lord was to give us so much to our original parents and by implication to us. To be sure, the prohibition against the tree was serious, but in the center of God's commands was a little uh, life full of meaning and purpose. And this life was ordered through what we may call the creation mandate sometimes known as the cultural mandate. It's originally given alongside the account of the special creation of human beings. The connection is deeply significant. God made mankind after his own image. While this carries ontological significance, the image gives us what we are. It also has functional significance, what we are called to do as we see from the inserted verses 26, 28 through 30 in chapter 1. Here the details of the original creation mandate are given. And so we know we have the mandate. It's there. But how has the church responded to culture and this creation mandate historically? And that's why I have those five categories on your outline, which were originally developed by H. Richard Niebuhr, a Lutheran, and uh, were used by him to talk about the relationship between Christ and culture. And the first one you'll see 
is Christ against culture. Now, essentially, this would be a fundamentalist kind of approach. Uh, you could say the Amish, maybe, uh, would fit into this category. People who believe we have no business engaging with culture, we have no business bringing about the transformation of anything, they are diametrically opposed. Uh, and uh, they sort of turn their back on any responsibility toward culture. Uh, everything for them usually is evangelism. The second one is the Christ of culture. I call this the plaster Jesus. You can shape him into any form you want him. This is the liberal approach to the relationship of the Christ to the culture. It identifies the church with existing cultural views and accommodates Christ is what the culture says he is. And so the striving goal of that particular group is more relevance than it is substance. Christ above culture tends to be the Roman Catholic view with their views of nature and grace. I don't want to get into detail, but that's it. The, the next one would be Lutheran, Christ and culture in paradox. Now there has been a, another reformed approach to this question called the two kingdoms view. And I am not going to dismiss that out of hand. I think there's some serious theology there, some serious things to think about. I'm 70 years old. Do you think I'm going to change my mind? No. <laughs> it's really hard for me to change my mind. But I do think Two Kingdoms has something to say. But at the end of the day, you're going to find me to be a transformationist. I do believe that our calling is to engage culture. That gives your life meaning and a sense of transcendence and a sense of, of calling that you have important things to do and the things you do. All right, let's just talk about this. Suppose you, this afternoon, you get home and you look around your home and it's messy. It's a total mess. Dishes piled up in the sink. Some of you could never go to bed at night with that. I know how you are. You're, you're hardwired that way. Some of you, like me, could walk by it for weeks unless I needed a clean plate. But, but uh, do you realize that going into the chaos of a dirty house and cleaning it is part of the cultural mandate? Did you know simple things like that? Fixing stuff that's broken is part of the cultural mandate. Your life is filled with meaning because of this calling. There's nothing you lay your hands to and do that you don't do for the glory of God, to demonstrate his beauty, his goodness. Um, and you do it with joy. Now, some things are mundane. I get it. Some things are repetitive. I worked on an assembly line first year in college, a television factory. And so in 60 seconds, I had to grab a picture tube off of a belt descending. They were coming along this. had to grab it, drop it into a chassis, take a drill, put four screws in it, do it over and over with two 15-minute breaks and a 30-minute lunch. And I have never said to myself anymore, son, go get, finish your college degree. You don't want to be doing this the rest of, <laughs> rest of your life. Because I was not only doing it at work, I was doing it in my sleep at night. I could not stop grabbing picture tubes and putting them in. It was, a, it was 100 miles an hour every day. It was stressful. And it became way too stressful for me. Uh, so some jobs are repetitive. Some jobs are hard. 
uh, no doubt, and, and we all have things in all of our jobs and callings that are not our favorite thing to do. But you have to understand that larger than that and bigger than that. Now, here's why a lot of people shrink back from the concept of the cultural mandate. It's because of two usurpers, I call. Number one, the Christian right. The Christian right took the theology of the cultural mandate and applied it in a very one-dimensional way. You remember the Christian right was engaged in trying to change America through what? Politics. Politics was absolutized and became the way to change the world. And every time I hear somebody say that, I think to myself, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And so it's not humans uniting together around politics. It doesn't mean you not, do not need to be engaged in politics. I'm not saying that at all. You should be. But that doesn't fix the world. And so Pat Robertson read Rush Dooney, Russus Rush Dooney. And because of that, uh, he got what he wanted out of the theology without being a Calvinist. In other words, he found a bullet for his gun he could shoot that would work. The second group are the Reconstructionists or what I call the Theonomist who have an um, uh, inflated view of the law of God and its place in culture. And so they tried to Christianize. Their goal is to Christianize by, and I'm going to say this a little tongue-in-cheek, but not really. They want to Christianize the nation by killing everybody we want to evangelize. <laughs> And if you don't know what that is, good, you probably don't need to know. But if you do know what that is, you understand that that gave cultural mandate a bad name. And so people have always thought that people talking about the cultural mandate are self-righteous, arrogant, and that's not the truth when you read the good guys. And the good guys have a very different view. What I'm so frustrated about is I'm not even through with the introduction. <laughs> and my class is half over. So all I'm trying to do is stir you up to get you to think about this really uh, and to see. And, and I think I need to talk a little bit more about what culture is. Um, you ever heard of Johann Sebastian Bach? At the bottom of his music, or he said this about music. My wife can tell you what he wrote. Is it solo? Yeah. Thank you. I defer to your knowledge of music. All music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the recreation of the soul. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> His music is beautiful, but that as a goal. All art has that as a goal. Legitimate art has, has that as a goal. Um, I'm going to read a quote uh, from Nicholas Volterstorff. All these guys are Dutch. You know, I had to learn how to pronounce it. I had like three Dutch professors in seminary. And I asked one of them one day in the hallway, I said, seems to me, if I ain't Dutch, I ain't much in your eyes. Is that right? <laughs> one of them laughed and said, you've just about got it. <laughs> we were all tongue-in-cheek, though. 
But these guys, had um, God gifted them with an amazing insight of our responsibility. A second quote that I like a lot comes from uh, Eric Liddell. You saw the movie perhaps or read the book Chariots of Fire. He said this, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. I feel his pleasure. My wife prays that for me every Sunday. Did you know that? She says, when you preach, I pray, Lord, you will communicate to him and he will feel your pleasure because you're doing what you're called to do. Nicholas Volterstorff says the following about art. He wrote a great book on art. And he said in his second chapter, the given uh, with which the artist works. He writes, it's not only tempting, but customary to speak in lofty abstract tones about art and to spiritualize it and etherealize it and to dematerialize it. The fundamental fact about the artist is that he or she is a worker in stone, bronze, clay, paint, acid, not the drug, but acid, and plates, uh, in sounds, in instruments, in states of affairs. Art combines creativity with the possibilities and limits of the medium within which one works. A particular medium presents both wonderful possibilities and constraints. A good artist will know their medium intimately and align their creativity with the possibilities of the medium in which they work. Similarly, other forms of culture making represent avenues for the development of human creativity and ingenuity. Like the creation of art, human activity in other spheres of culture is carried out with real freedom within the limits of God's call. And so there is such a freedom in understanding that. Sometimes we feel like we have to defend ourselves for participating in culture making. That somehow that's sub-Christian. No, that is not sub-Christian. Whatever your discipline is, whatever your calling is, whatever your area of culture making finds itself to be, it's glorious work. And a friend of mine used to say, he said, when I became a Christian, I gave up all my vices. When I beca uh, became Reformed, I got them all back. But no, <laughs> what the Reformation gives you back is your soul. God made you that way. And he wants you to produce art in every dimension of that word. We're all gifted by the Lord to participate in that kind of thing. And it's, my wife um, we, you know, we both grew up very fundamentalist and we grew up in churches that never talked about this kind of thing and so we go to seminary and somebody hands her Edith Schaefer books and she reads the family was it what is a family and the other one the hidden art of homemaking now you have to know this when we were in seminary uh, I had enough money to go the first semester I didn't have a government grant I didn't have a church I wasn't of any denomination that was supporting me. I just cashed out whatever retirement I went, and I went to seminary and said, God will provide. Or at least that's what the guy told me. 
So she was in the middle of campus life, and she was around all this stuff, and she was blossoming like a flower, and everybody was talking about all this kind of stuff that I'm talking to you now. It was so much fun. And she got sent to the backside of nowhere. We took a church in Water Valley, Mississippi to pay my way through school. So I went to seminary full-time Monday through Friday. For the weekend, I went there and preached twice, taught Sunday school, whatever else. Drove back. It's about a 150-mile drive between where we lived and where I went to seminary. And the second year there, we upped and moved into the manse 150 miles away. And she said, were it not for Edith Schaefer in these books, having the influence in her life, she would have gone crazy. But that her emphasis upon developing culture, especially homemaking, learning how to make biscuits, yay, stuff like that. <laughs> was a lifesaver for her. And she walked up and she told me, can it be that what we were taught all along <laughs> is not right and that this is the truth? It is so freeing. So freeing. So filled with life and possibilities. And so for me, it is uh, very important that we learn to think God's thoughts after him and become engaged in this calling and process to culture. Let me run through the outline and hit a few other things while we're thinking about it. First, let me give you the details of the creation mandate. The mandate has three components, each of them related. First, and often least notice, it is given through and because of the blessing of God in Genesis 1:28. Because of the divine blessing, it is appropriate to call it a covenant. Its purpose, above all, is to fulfill mankind's relationship with God as it was originally intended. Second, the commandment to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The population was to increase and then fill the earth to discover its possibilities. Third, the mandate orders that mankind subdue the earth. The word for subduing, kibosh, <laughs> interesting, kibosh, uh, is not meant to be violent. It's not like fighting a military force, but rather being like a pioneer trying to make your way and live life and settle. It's to be done in a gentle way. It is not, it is perhaps not coincidental that the three aspects of the mandate are reflected in our English word inherited from the medieval French for culture. Cult, referring to worship, is one derivative Colonization, meaning to spread to other parts of the world, is another. And culture means literally the cutting edge of the plow, or what we ordinarily call cultivation. So you've been put into this world to cultivate it. You have a calling to cultivate it. And God will use you to do that. With that said, something happened in Genesis 3 that affected our call uh, to culture making. And that is for the woman in her home life um, in Genesis 3 around 17, 16, 17, and 18, the effects of the fall with the woman made her um, desire her husband. Now there's a lot of controversy over what that means. I'm going to tell you what I think it means. Desire to replace him. And to be the leader 
and uh, in the home. And the man's portion of the curse was uh, work for him would become drudgery. He would earn his living by the sweat of his brow. And the curse of sin upon him was everything that aggravates you about your job. <laughs> and so work becomes what? A battle, a struggle in that respect. But redemption comes back and places us in a position again to reclaim these territories. So one of the curses of the fall destroyed being fruitful and multiplying and what you might call the development of the home. The other one has to do with man's task. Now, the image of God is male and female, right? So the cultural mandate goes to who? Just men? No. No. Male and female. That is the complete image of God. We're different. We're complementary in many ways. But all are called to image God in the world. You see, everything our culture is wrestling with right now and struggling with is addressed in the first three chapters of Genesis uh, in a most powerful, well, the entire Bible, but especially the opening chapters, which lay the ontology for the created order and what our calling is. And so the fall brings in thorns and thistles that makes things difficult both at home and culture making. And so redemption comes, redemption already, and we're able to bring to bear upon culture uh, some of this work. And so as we cultivate it, uh, we see things grow and develop. Now, um, I wanted to talk about a few other things on the outline, if I can find mine up here. I know I haven't made much progress, and for some of you, that is... Uh, a big sin but uh, for me it's just frustration and the fact that I hope I live long enough to get to talk about this again sometime um, here's some things that I think are helpful to think about uh, the cultural mandate Nancy Piercy who writes really well in a book called Total Truth says this in Genesis God gives what we might call the first job description be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The first phrase, be fruitful and uh, multiply, means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music, etc., etc., etc. Everything we put our hand to do that isn't sinful. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create culture, build civilizations, nothing less. Sadly, this mandate has been twisted to justify cultural arrogance, the abuse of the natural world, brutal subjugation of others, all in the belief that God is on my side. Woe unto those who think God is on their side. God is on God's side. He's not on your side or my side. At the other extreme are those who feel the cultural mandate no longer applies in a fallen world. With the coming of Christ, they argue, all that matters is personal salvation. Beyond the bare minimum, cultural pursuits are irrelevant at best and dangerous at worst. 
but the weight of Scripture smothers these caricatures. The cultural mandate is a creation ordinance, just like the Sabbath day. And uh, I think when the kingdom comes and we enter into the eternal Sabbath, we will be enjoying all the culture making that made it through the judgment. <laughs> uh, and you know what I think we're going to be doing in the new earth? Culture making. <laughs> it will never stop. Music will be written. Books will be written. I hope I get to write a book in that one. It doesn't appear when get one in this world. But, uh, and that's on me, nobody else. But that's the calling we see in Scripture is that if all heaven is is floating around on billowy clouds of ease, being fanned by an angel, eating grapes from the promised land, then I'm not sure <laughs> that sums up what heaven is. Heaven, we will still be imaging our God. We will still be growing and developing and making culture. And it will be beautiful. And so it's such a vision, such a glory. If I had to recommend a book that I would recommend you to read on this subject, because I'm not going to cover it all, is a book by Craig Bartholomew called The Creation, The Doctrine of Creation. It's a boring title, but a great book. I mean, um, I think he's Canadian, which, you know, for some of you, you'll go, hmm. But, you know, broken clocks write twice a day. But anyway, he, he can write really well, and a lot of my enthusiasm comes from reading people like him. But we're image bearers. We're to bring order from chaos. We're to do it with compassion, but also with authority. We are to create and enjoy the beauty of creation. We are to pursue excellence. We are to do so for the welfare of the city, which is what God told his people in exile, especially the Babylonian exile in chapter 29, to do it for the welfare of the city, that all truth is God's truth, that there is uh, no legitimate sacred secular divide. We've been sold a, a dualistic problem with that in my humble but accurate opinion that... Um, that's what we are to do. Anybody got an outline handy? Can I borrow it for a second? I kind of want to wrap this up. How much time have I got? Five minutes? Okay. We've talked about the fall. Autonomy is a big problem. We were basically created to think God's thoughts after him, to be receptively recreated, not to take our own thoughts and impose them on creation we're to do it because God has built into creation order he's built into creation law and our responsibility as believers is to discern those patterns and develop creation according to those patterns uh, thorns and thistles I talked about structure and direction means creation has not been ontologically destroyed but it has been moved in a direction away from God creation itself labors under birth pains waiting for the sons of God to appear uh, creation itself is under the curse uh, I was going to talk about that um, cosmic redemption both personal and creational the means there's something called common grace common grace is not salvific 
But common grace is the grace of God in stopping things from being as bad as they could be. If the Holy Spirit was ever withdrawn from this world, you wouldn't want to be here a second. If restraint was removed, you wouldn't want to be here another second. You think it's bad now? It is bad, but not as bad as it will be or could be. Um, Also, the means is special revelation, God's Word, and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the eschaton. There will be continuity between this world and the world to come. There will be ultimate transformation, and the garden will become the city. Any questions? I can't do it. We have something organized, and I just found out. But you can talk to Dave. Maybe we'll do another one of these sometimes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our just brief look, hitting the high points, something called our call to dominion, our call to culture making. And, Lord, you've gifted us all. We all have a place in the world. We all have gifts that we're to use, not only for ourselves, not only for you, but for others. And we pray that we would draw strength from you to live our lives in such a way that we reflect back the beauty, glory, and truth of who you are. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.